0: If you remember last week, we talked about, we we began a series that I'm kind of calling the What Child Is This series, right? Remembering what was so special, what was so unique about that child born in Bethlehem that merits this kind of attention and honor and worth. And last week, we, we opened up to Hebrews chapter 1, and the author of Hebrews demonstrated and proved to us that this Jesus, this child born in Bethlehem, was an eternal God, the eternal God. He was as equally God as the God that he worshipped. He was fully God in every sense that the Father was, that the angels worship him, that he is the creator of the angels, that he is above, exalted, and supreme over all things. He is the creator God that was born in Bethlehem uh, 2,000 years ago, but what's so amazing about the author of Hebrews is he begins in chapter 1 with the deity of Christ, and then he moves into chapter 2 into what we're going to look at today, the humanity of Christ. If you would open up to Hebrews chapter 2, please. Or actually, forgive me, why don't we do this instead? You can put your marker there, but why don't you open up to 1 John first? And here's why I'm doing that. Last week, we talked about the deity of Christ because, we're, remember, we're, we're setting the incarnation, and to understand the incarnation rightly, we talked about how you have to understand the hypostatic union, and the hypostatic union is the doctrine which we confess during our time of reader response, which is that Jesus is fully God, and yet, at the same time, fully man. And last week, we opened up to Hebrews 1, and we saw the first part of that, the fully God. We, we established from Hebrews 1 that Jesus is, in fact, fully God. But the reason that sermon can be so compelling and gripping is because in the day and age, in the culture that we live in, the deity of Christ is the thing that we have to try to prove. It's the thing we have to try to wrap our heads around. We, in other words, we live in a day and age where it's really easy to believe that a, man, a, a human being named Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and died on a Roman cross. That's easy to believe. Most atheists believe that. Muslims believe that. Christians believe that. A man named Jesus was born of Bethlehem yet was from Nazareth and was killed by, by Jews and Romans alike on a cross. The humanity of Christ is easy to understand. We're human, so is Jesus. And in our culture, what then we have to try to prove is, well, this Jesus was more than just a man, he was also God. That's the debate of our day and age. That's what Muslims and and secular skeptics and atheists need convincing of. But believe it or not, there was a time in the history of the church when the deity of Christ was the no-brainer, and it was the humanity of Christ that was rejected. And and we see this in in early church history. This was a heresy that was uh, rejected by the church called docetism. Docetism, And the docetists were people who rejected the humanity of Christ. They believed that, that that body that you saw and that person you heard talking was just like a phantom or what we would think of nowadays as like some kind of holographic image or some spiritual uh, looking alike of a human flesh, but that he didn't truly have a physical real body, that he, was, he wasn't a man in any way, shape, or form. He was only God. And Docetism was was sort of creeping in at the end of the apostolic age, and it grew so much that it eventually became one of the foundational doctrines of the, the greatest opponent to Christianity in the first two centuries, which was known as, first three centuries really, known as Gnosticism. And the Gnostics had a lot of bizarre beliefs, but one of their beliefs was that this physical world is bad, like the nature's corrupted, physical stuff is corrupted, human beings are corrupted, so why would God step into something bad? And this is why the Gnostics denied resurrection, because resurrection to them is, is hell, because their whole goal of the Gnostics was to, be, to go into the spiritual, to break free from the physical, and then here comes Paul saying, by the way, when you die, you're going to one day be re-resurrected into the physical again. And the Gnostics are thinking, that's what we're trying to get out of. So docetism led to this very low view of creation, this very low view of humanity and, and the physical realm. And so it was beyond comprehension to think of this glorious, wonderful man named Jesus being a human being. And, and, and we can see how it started to creep into the church because it comes up specifically in John's epistle. So uh, 1 John is written by the same man who wrote the gospel of John. And, and notice what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. John chapter 1, famous verse, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So John believes in the incarnation. He believes that the word that was existing with God in eternity became flesh and dwelt among us. And so notice what John says as he's writing to a a dispersed amount of Christians, different churches collectively. And He says, beginning in chapter 4, verse 2, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Verse 1, he told them to test all spirits. And notice he had to emphasize this. If, if, if someone comes along and tells you that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh, that person is not from God. Now, why do you think he had to say that? Why do you think he used that example? Well, obviously, the churches in John's day were being told that. He was, he was trying to address a real argument that was being against them, and Christians might be tempted to consider these people, uh, they're Christians too, right? They've got a little different view of things, but maybe they're Christians too. And, and John says, no, that's bad discernment. It's you're going around testing the spirits, those people who have come into you and tried to tell you Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, they are not from God. Turn over just one book to Second John. 2 John, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Right, the church makes a, a big deal about antichrist doctrines, uh, but you want to know who is an antichrist? Uh, 1 John says many have already come. There are many antichrists. There's not a antichrist. There's many antichrists. And anyone who would deny Jesus' humanity is an antichrist. They are deceivers. They are false spirits. They are not from God. They are antichrists. But I bring those two verses up so that we understand that what might seem obvious to us was, has not always been so obvious to people that this miraculous supernatural person named Jesus would also rightly be called a human being. And so Hebrews, as he first argues for the deity of Christ, you can turn back now to Hebrews chapter 2. We are now going to look at Hebrews chapter 2 and see that Jesus was not just God, but Jesus was also fully 100% man. Jesus was a human being. And what's amazing about this text in Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 18. Just to give you the the outline of the sermon briefly, what what this is going to tell us is not just that the incarnation happened. We're going to see that the incarnation happened, that Jesus became a man, but it's also going to tell us why. Jesus became a man and why he did that. So if you begin with me in verse 14, we will read through the end of the chapter. I ask you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's not difficult if you read a little bit more in the context, we didn't have time to cover the whole chapter. That the he in verse 14 is most assuredly referring to Jesus, to God the Son. And really, the entire chapter of Hebrews 2 uh, is all about the incarnation. For time's sake, we didn't have time to cover the entire chapter, but you can read the whole thing for a a, a wonderful exposition and proof of the humanity of Christ. And, And he's continuing this thought we looked at last week where he's, the author of Hebrews is sort of comparing Jesus to the angels and showing us how he's superior, but then he says early on in this chapter where we didn't read, but Jesus was not only superior to the angels, but for a time he was made lower than them. And now he's explaining what that means, that he was made lower. And he quotes from Psalm chapter 8, where it was prophesied that the Messiah would be made lower than the angels. The incarnation is essentially where Jesus, who is supreme and exalted above all the angels for a time being, was made lower than the angels. And so he continues in that comparison. And in verse 14, he tells us very explicitly that Jesus Christ, unlike the docetist theology, truly became a man. He says in verse 14 that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of these same things. The children that God gave him... What he quotes earlier in this text, the children of God, the people of God, God's creation, his created people, they have this one thing in common. Part of their humanity comes with this flesh and blood deal, comes with this body. And the text tells us that since the children share in this, Jesus Christ himself shared in this as well. And that's why the text earlier calls him brother. And in our song, one of our songs we sang today, we referred to God our Father, Christ our brother. And in our, our reader response, it referred to Christ our God, yet, or God our Father, Christ our brother. That's why we call Jesus brother, and it's not, a, and it's not an offense. It's not, it's not sort of, you know, putting him down. He wanted to be considered a brother with us. He is our eldest brother. He is our holy brother. Jesus became our brother in humanity. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, our brother, likewise partook of these same things. Verse 14 is as clear as can be, Jesus was not a projection. He was not a spiritual apparition. Jesus was a real, physical human being. He partook of the flesh and blood. Just as John 1 says, the word became flesh. But we have to understand something really, really important here. And this, this might sound like um, uh, nitpicking, but it's, I assure you it's not. Flesh and blood was just a phrase that covered all of humanity. It wasn't just a phrase for, for just literally like blood cells and bone. It, it, it represented all of humanity. And that's why the author actually makes it s- this very specific. Remember, look at verse 17 for a moment. He says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every way, he had to be made like us. What does this mean? That he took on flesh and blood, he partook of flesh and blood, he was made like us in every way. We have to understand that Jesus being a human means more than just having a body. If I were to take a, buy, you know, they make those gorilla suits people wear Halloween and stuff. If I were to put on a gorilla suit, that wouldn't make me a gorilla. I would look like a gorilla, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a gorilla. The incarnation is not God wearing a costume, right? It's not like pouring water into a cup where Jesus was like, I want to come to earth, so I'll just zip up this human suit. Could you, someone get my zipper for me, right? It, there was more than just a physical body here, all, all, although obviously the physical body was part of it. But what this phrase is representing and what we see throughout the scripture is that Jesus took on a full humanity. He, he took on a human nature. He took on a human personhood, not just a human body. What, what do I mean by that? Well, let's just begin with the body. He took a flesh and blood. Jesus had a physical body. We see that all throughout the scriptures. The fact that Jesus was born... Right? You realize that you know, when you began, you began as a, a fertilized egg. You were fully human at that point. Jesus one time was, looked just like that. Jesus was a baby. Jesus was a teenager. Jesus was a young adult. Jesus was a grown man. Jesus had a physical body that could actually be conceived and born and grow. His bones and his muscle had to grow and multiply just like you. He had a real physical human body capable of being born. We see also that Jesus was hungry. He ate with people. He dined with people. It wasn't like Casper the friendly ghost where when the ghosts eat, all the food falls to the floor, right? He had a real physical body that got hungry and tired and needed sustenance, needed to be refueled. Jesus was capable of being exhausted, of being worn out. But above all, the most important thing which we're going to get to in a minute about his body is He died. His body was, he could bleed, he could be cut, he could be touched, he could be harmed, he could be hurt. So we see that Jesus had a a real physical body, but the Bible is more specific than that, that he actually had more than just that. For example, in Luke chapter 2, it tells us that Jesus, when he was a child, grew in wisdom and maturity. How does an omniscient God who knows all things grow in wisdom? That's because Jesus was more than the omniscient God who knows all things. He also took on a human mind that had to learn. Jesus had an actual human mind that learned and grew in wisdom. Jesus had a human body. He had a human mind. Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says, my soul is sorrowful within me. In John 11, describing Jesus says he was deeply moved in his spirit. Jesus had a human soul. He had a body, he had a mind, he had a soul. In John chapter six, Jesus says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane before the cross was, Father, please take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. Jesus had a human will. You see, Jesus was fully man in every way. He wasn't just God occupying a body. He wasn't just a spirit, a, God, a divine spirit poured into a body and, and zipped up tight. No, he had a human soul. He had a human spirit. He had human thoughts and desires. He wept. He got sad. He got emotional. He got tired. He, got, he was fully human in every sense of the word. We're going to see in a minute sin being the only uh, thing he didn't share with us. But other than sin, he was hu- just as human as you and I are. Jesus took on flesh and blood. And that's, this is this reason, again, it might, it's, it's easy from too much of a distance to see this as nitpicky. And we're going to get to in a minute why it's not nitpicky. But that's why the early church, if you were to study in church history uh, different heresies of the church, it can get really confusing. Like, what are these people talking about? For example, there was a, an early church heresy known as monophysitism monophysitism, which was rejected by the church. And monophysitism was essentially the belief that Jesus only had one nature. But the, the, the text here in Hebrews and the rest of the testimony of Scripture are very clear this is not true, and, and here's why that can't be true. If Jesus only had one nature, then there's only two ways of understanding the incarnation. There's that, that would mean that there was some kind of blending, right? There's one nature, and it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of divine and human that they were blended together. It's kind of like a, a quasi-human, quasi-God. But Hebrews chapter 2 says nothing about a blending or a mixing. Right? Jesus did not have one nature like where you take two colors and you put them together and get a new color, and that's Jesus. Where you mix the colors and now you've got a new one. That, that, that's not the case here. Hebrews chapter 1 spoke of Jesus as being the eternal God fully in ever, every sense. And remember, Hebrews 1 was written after Jesus. incarnation so jesus even in his human state we have to be able to say is fully god in every sense that the father is and here's the problem if jesus has mixed or blended his new he has this new blent nature he's no longer as equally god as the father he has a new nature from the father that's entirely different but hebrews 1 is saying even after the incarnation jesus can so rightly be seen as equally god but now it's telling us that he can rightly also be seen as equally man. So there's no, there's not a blending here necessarily. So that's why we say Jesus had two natures in one person, a divine and a human nature. And there was a, an, another heresy by the name of monothelitism. And monothelitism said, okay, well he has two natures, but only he had one will. So he had two natures, but it's still denied that he had a human mind, a human soul, and a human will, that there was only one of those, and The other church said, well, then that's not a second nature. (laughs) You see, we have to understand, no matter how beyond our comprehension it is, the Bible, not only here in Hebrews 1 and 2, but its entire testimony presents to us a Jesus who is fully God and fully man. It doesn't say that half of the deity took on half of the man and then the two parts made a whole. He's not a demigod. He's not half God and half man. He's not like Hercules, Jesus is fully God in every sense of the word, and he's fully man in every sense of the word. He is the eternal God who took on humanity. The same God who created human nature had the power to join himself to it. The same God who's capable of creating you as more than just a body, but as a complete human being, he has the power to create human beings, therefore he had the power to join himself to that. And here's the thing, we don't have to plumb the depths of the incarnation to understand it entirely and be right with God. Of course, there's an element of mystery here, of course, but no matter what field of discipline you get into, there's an element of mystery. You think people who study physics know everything there is to know about the universe? Not even close. As a matter of fact, you know, they say that we know almost nothing about outer space, and I've read that we know more about outer space than we do about our own oceans, our oceans here on earth go so deep and we don't have the technology or the capabilities of going down there. We don't even, there, there's a an complete mystery within our observable realm. No matter what you study, you're never going to get to a place where I have to understand this perfectly in all its components and all its facets, no mystery in order for it to be true. That's never the case. I would argue there's almost no thing you think you know that you know perfectly and infallibly. There's a mystery to almost everything we believe. So, I understand if this maybe seems a bit overwhelming. But we can take the scriptures at face value, and we can say here that in the person of Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us that that person is fully God in every sense of the word, and then that God took on a human nature, took on a human body, and that he now has a human soul, a human mind, a human will, and yet is a divine person that have come together. He took on flesh. The incarnation happened. But more than that, the text tells us not just that the incarnation happened, the text tells us why it happened. And this is really where it starts to get even more beautiful than it already is. Look again at verse 14. The text gives us two separate but related reasons as to why Jesus had to take on flesh. Why did Jesus have to take on a human nature? Why did he have to become man? Verse 14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the first reason Jesus had to become a man is to die. He had to die. Jesus needed to come and die, but the text, really, that's just the means to the end. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he had to die so that he could destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus had to die in order to conquer his enemies. The text tells us that it's the death of Christ that conquered Satan, that conquered the devil. Let's talk about that for a minute. Now, I don't know why very clearly the the text specifically identifies the devil as as, as the one who has the power of death. Right? This isn't explained elsewhere in Scripture very clearly, so we're kind of left to speculate. Um, but it's, it's not hard to get there. I mean, Satan has a remarkably intimate relationship with sin and death that no other creature has, as he is the one who tempted us and helped plunge us into sin and death. In that sense, he's sort of the the, the author of it. Satan is the one, the ultimate enemy of God, who who th- through him and his legions are, are trying to lead God's people trying to lead people on earth into sin, into death. He has an incredible power there, but I think this is a reference to Satan as the accuser. Revelation chapter 12 defines Satan as the accuser of the brethren, the one who's constantly accusing us of our sins before God, the one who desperately wants to see our condemnation. Satan, for example, is kind of like the state, and any kind of criminal law. He is the one making his case against us. And here's the problem. He's right. He's right. He accuses us, and his accusations are right. And I think that's why the text tells us we have such a fear of death. Death. Why are people in their natural state so afraid of death? Death is a scary thing for all people. Why is it so scary? Well, I think it's because we know we have an accuser. We know that on the other side, we deserve judgment. Satan is the lawyer who is going to make sure that we are judged. He's going to accuse us night and day. And that is why we are afraid of death. Romans chapter one talks about how all men know God and all men have sinned against God and they know they've sinned against God but here on earth, they try to suppress that truth and unrighteousness but you can never fully suppress it and so there's always this lingering understanding of I am going to die one day and I am going to stand before God drowning in offenses and sins and Satan will be there to make sure God hears those accusations Yet Jesus has done something so that we no longer have to fear that time. The same Revelation chapter 12 that calls Satan the accuser of the brethren, who accuses the saints both night and day, later goes on to say, But we have overcome the accuser by what? The blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. Satan's accusations are right until you have a testimony. Of the blood. So, what we're putting the power piecing this together here is Satan is the one who has power over sin and death. He is the accuser of the brethren, and his accusations are true and legitimate accusations. You are truly sinful. You and me have truly sinned, but we have overcome the one who has power of death. We have overcome his accusations as Revelation says, by the word of our testimony the blood of the Lamb and is equally said here, because why? A death has occurred that has destroyed him and delivered us. We are no longer afraid of death. We are no longer afraid of judgment. We are no longer afraid of his accusations because a death has occurred. One of my favorite songs ever is Before the Throne of God Above. and One of my favorite lines is there is when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within. The accuser of the brethren, the one who had power over sin and death, is tempting me to despair. He's accusing me of all my sin, but then upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. The death of Christ has delivered us. It has freed us from the accuser and from all of his judgments. So the people of God do not have to fear death. We don't have to fear judgment because of the incarnation and specifically because of the death of Christ. And isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, the text tells us that Satan was the one who held the power of death. But what was, so Satan is the one who holds the power of death. But what was the instrument God used to destroy him? What does the text say? What was God's weapon of choice? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what the text tells us. And that's what the Bible tells us. And here it tells us that Jesus has, the one who has power of sin and death, Jesus destroyed him. He came to destroy the one who has the power of death. Jesus came and destroyed the devil. And how does the text say he did that? By dying. Satan's greatest weapon is death. And Jesus wrestled it from his hands and used it against him. Satan is the one who has power over death. Satan is the one who ultimately played a role in killing Jesus. And he probably thought that was his greatest victory, right? What what greater moment of triumph has Satan ever had That the greatest moment in all of Satan's evil schemes was the moment that he was able to work on earth and help wicked, evil men destroy the Son of God. The one who has power of death had the power to destroy the Son of God, or so he thought. But then Jesus resurrected from the dead. And that, in turn, destroyed Satan. One commentator said this, death was the instrument Christ used to bring Satan to naught and a more unlikely weapon cannot be imagined. That the death of Christ should have appeared to the author of Hebrews and to Christians generally as an instrument of world-shaking victory is absolutely astonishing. Satan's weapon, death, was therefore wrested from him and used as the instrument of Satan's own destruction. And just as David took Goliath's own sword and cut off the giant's own head with it, David's greater son took Satan's weapon, death, and destroyed him with it. Jesus conquered Satan by dying. What seemed was the moment of Jesus' defeat, what seemed like the moment of Jesus' failure was actually his greatest moment of victory against Satan. And in turn we see this crystal clear, turn to the book of Colossians. I love the the way Paul wrote this in Colossians. Colossians chapter two. Verse 13, we see how the way Jesus has conquered the devil and the way he has freed us from slavery is by forgiving us our sins. Jesus has forgiven us our sins. Through his death, our sins are forgiven, the accuser has been silenced, and that is Satan's ultimate defeat. That's what it says in chapter 2 of Colossians. Look at verse 13. And you who were, or forgive me, and you. Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." So we were sinners, we deserve judgment, and God has dealt with our sin by nailing it to the cross with Christ. So our sins have been forgiven. Now what, what does th- Paul say is the consequence now of a people whose sins have been forgiven? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And if you look at your Bible, it may even have a footnote over that phrase rulers and authorities. This is a phrase that's almost always used to describe demons. Jesus, now it it maybe includes the Jewish enemies and the Roman enemies, that might be part of it, but what is crystal clear is that Satan and his legions were conquered the moment our sins were forgiven. Jesus came to forgive us our sins, and when our sins are forgiven, the enemy is destroyed and we are released from the fear of slavery. And here's how it all ties back to the incarnation. There was only one way that the justice of God could rightly deal with our sins. And this is foreshadowed all throughout the New Testament. The book of Hebrews later on goes on to say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God is a just God. You would never look upon a human judge and think that he was just if he just, ah. we'll forget about that. I, I know that was really wicked. That was really wicked, but come on. Boys will be boys. Is that God's response to sin? I want to destroy Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren, so I'll just forgive the brethren. No. You see, God had a way in his own character and nature that justice had to be met. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but no human being is capable of paying that great price because they're wretched sinners. They're the ones who deserve judgment, so they can't be the ones to free everybody else and free themselves. So the incarnation was the perfect answer to an unsolvable question. This was sort of the divine dilemma. This was heaven's dilemma. Only a perfect person can die to free them of their sins. God's the only perfect person left, but here's a problem. God can't die. So what did the incarnation do? It made God to make up a word, dieable. <laughs> the incarnation, Jesus, the very God, equal with the Father, taking on human flesh, we now have a perfect God man who's capable of death. God can now taste death. And so, because of the incarnation, Jesus was able to actually die, actually shed his blood, and because of his shed blood, we have been forgiven our sins and released. That's why the Incarnation matters so much. Because without the Incarnation, we are dead in our sins, and the accusations of our great accuser stand. Jesus was made like us so that he could die. But the text also tells us that Jesus was made like us so that he could intercede. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So what we see in this text right now is that Jesus' death serves as part of his what we call his high priestly role. In the Old Testament, they had a high priest. They had priests and then they had a high priest. And the high priest was the one who acted as that middleman between sinful people and a holy God. And the high priest was the only one who was allowed to go into the holy of holies, and he was the one who was to offer a blood sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. And, and, and just so we know, the high priest constantly served as that mediator, his, his, his act of atonement was only one aspect of his mediation, but he was perpetually their mediator, and when he died, they would need a new one. And so what this text is telling us is that Christ, his death on our behalf is part of his mediation. It's a part of his role as our great high priest, but it's not not as if that's the only way in which he's a priest. Christ has to constantly live on our behalf. He has to constantly apply the, the, the benefits of his crucifixion. In the same way that the priest had to constantly live on behalf of the people when he died, they elected a new one, there was constantly a priest. We needed to have a priest who was constantly mediating between us and God. So that we don't just go to the throne of God covered in the blood of Christ, we go with Christ himself. He still stands in that gap constantly for us, silencing our accuser. And the text tells us in order for him to be our perpetual high priest, our continuous high priest, well, one, that's why he had to resurrect. That's why he has to be a living God still. He's not in the grave anymore. He resurrected. But it tells us that this is why he had to become fully man. Because if he's going to stand on our behalf, if he's going to stand on behalf of humans, he has to actually know what humanity is. He has to actually be one of us. He can't just be similar. He can't just look like us. He has to actually be us. So that's why the text says he was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This text is telling us that Jesus experienced the sufferings and the difficulties of your humanity so that when we turn to our great high priest in heaven, we can confidently hear him say, I understand, child. Your heartbreak, I know. Your frailties, I understand. Your weaknesses, I felt them. Look at what he says in chapter 4. This, 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 this theme of Jesus being the high priest is all throughout the book of Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews essentially boils down to Jesus as our great high priest. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And it's on that basis, verse 16, let us then draw with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, verse 16 is the answer to that question of the fear of death. We are no longer slaves to the fear of death, but we come to the throne of God with full confidence. And why do, you do, why do we do that? Because we have a high priest who has been made like us in every way. He can sympathize with all of our weaknesses and difficulties, and he was able to do that because he became us. Staying in the book of Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verses 23 through 27. Forgive me, being in verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like the high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Or forgive me, let's, let's look at one verse in chapter 9, one passage in chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 24. For Christ has entered into the holy place, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. One more, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. We see all throughout the book of Hebrews is this theme we found in chapter 2. Why did Jesus have to become a human? For two reasons. So that he could die and make a perfect atonement for your sins. One that no animal or other human could possibly give you. He died to free you of your sins and in doing that, he conquered the accuser and he released you from fear of death. And he also had to become man and become like us in every way except for sin so that he could constantly, perpetually, forever, stand in the gap. He can be our perfect, merciful, faithful high priest because as Timothy says, he is the God-man, the only mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Jesus was fully human. In every way but sin, he was fully human. And that actually transitions us perfectly well into communion. Because what else are we remembering at this table here? We're remembering that the God we serve had a real body, A real humanity, one that was capable of dying to make atonement for his sins. A real humanity capable of standing in heaven between us. And I hope my wife doesn't mind me sharing this, but we got unfortunate news about one of her uncles last night that he's having liver failure and things don't look good for him right now. And it wasn't long before we heard this news that I found out about an old high school friend who was two years younger than me that young, healthy person had a seizure never woke up. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Tonight is not guaranteed. All of us know that we will die one day, and when we die, we will stand before God. And when we stand before God, the accuser will be there, and he will accuse the brethren. And it's in light of that that we need to understand that when we do that, we need a mediator. I don't want to go to court without a lawyer. I don't want to stand before the throne room of heaven knowing I'm guilty without a representative. That's what the incarnation allows. The incarnation allows a forgiveness of sin and it allows us to die one day and stand before God in confidence, not in fear. And why is there confidence? Because we don't approach the throne alone. We approach it with a mediator who says, she is mine. He is mine. I have paid for his sins. I understand her weaknesses, and I forever live as the high priest on their behalf. And It is on that basis that the Father allows us eternity in his presence. Because Jesus was God, which made him holy and innocent and pure and capable of offering a sacrifice that was perfect that no animal could ever make, but he was also man, capable of understanding our frailties. And this is what makes Jesus, uh, church, we have to see this is what makes him so superior to every other belief or understanding about God. You see, every other God outside of Christ sits over a world you read Greek and Roman literature, this was always the Greeks' problem with the pantheon of gods. This was always the Roman problem with the pantheon of gods is their gods sat in the heavens eating grapes in total bliss and they watched a world beneath them suffer and die and they had no relationship to that. They just watched it happen. The God of Islam stands in the heavens and watches a world of sickness and death. And he calls people into it and he lets people suffer and he lets people die. And never once is he the kind of God who leads us into that place. He merely sends us into that place. But what we remember at the table here is that all of my weakness, all of my pain, my death, my fragility, My insecurities, my fears, my discouragements, my exhaustion. The God who put me in that place is the God who went there first. He does not call us to a life that he himself was not willing to be burdened with. That we can confidently pray to our God and know that my weaknesses, he understands, he's felt them. My discouragements and my fears, he understands, he's felt them. We worship a God who did not just call us into these storms. He walked them himself. We have a mediator who stands in the gap, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who paid for our sins, and he was able to do that because he was truly a human being. If the elders would please come to distribute the bread.